What is the good life? The phrase has a kind of a tinge of hedonism about it that we might be uncomfortable with. It sounds like a tagline on a Maserati ad or some uh, uh, poster for condos on the Upper East Side, the good life. I think that's because we've ceded the term to consumerism and the late modern Epicureanism that traffics under the banner of luxury. So now the good life is synonymous with all of those glossy pages at the front of Vogue, or it's synonymous with the debauched exploits of the Wolf of Wall Street. I want to suggest it's time for us to take back the term, the good life. Because the good life, in fact, is what we all seek. It's not a question of whether you're chasing the good life. It's only a question of which, what version. To be human is to be the kind of creature who's animated now by some vision of flourishing, some picture of what you think a well-lived life looks like. So the ancient philosopher Aristotle put it this way. He would say, uh, uh, every human being is wired in such a way that we are pursuing some good, some telos was his term, some end goal that actually then pulls a way of life out of us. Or as St. Augustine put it, is not the happy life that which all desire? Is not the happy life that which all desire, which indeed no one fails to desire? The contemporary philosopher Charles Taylor would say, we are all oriented by some kind of social imaginary. That is a tacit picture of what we think the happy life looks like. That's what it means to be human. Now, right there though is a crucial point that we need to drill down into. The good life is something that is pictured more than it is intellectually processed. That is, the good life is something that you imagine more than something that you think about. It's the picture of the good life that captivates us is we would say it's caught more than it's taught. And so what that means is is that versions of the good life, they're not funneled into your head through messages. The versions of the good life that get hold of us find their way into the heart through our bodies. So when some vision of the good life captivates me. It's not because usually it's convinced my intellect. It's because I've in some way been invited to taste and see. So think of it this way. A vision of the good life sort of pulls on you and it pulls out of you then a way to live because you've been hooked by some tactile vision. Now, Taylor says that those social imaginaries, those pictures seep into us through things like images, stories, narratives, myths, and legends. And I just want to emphasize tonight that those stories and myths and images and fables about what the good life is aren't the sorts of things that just float abstractly in a culture. They are carried in the rhythms and rituals and scripts that narrate our lives in the background 
often under the radar of our conscious awareness. So in other words, a vision of the good life is caught through our immersion in cultural liturgies, we might call them, embodied communal rituals that enact now some vision of flourishing and then inscribes it right into our imagination so that it becomes a story we carry in our bones. So if, if we're going to ask the question, what picture of the good life has captured our imaginations? You first have to ask the question, what rituals and liturgies have we given ourselves over to? What are we absorbing? What are we catching? Are we imitating the saints who picked up their cross and laid down their lives, the vision of a cruciform life that's enshrined in the stained glass in our cathedrals? Or are we imitating all of those J.Crew mannequins that line the labyrinth of the mall? Or uh, uh, um, the product-toting Kardashians who have sucked us into their story? Is the poetry of our imagination steeped in the cadences of the Psalms prayed morning and evening? Or have we given ourselves over to the screeched litanies of cable news? Are we a people whose imagination has been captivated by a wounded lamb? Or has our imagination been hijacked because we've given ourselves over to the nationalist and militarist liturgies that we rehearse at the stadium and the racetrack? Whose version of the good life are we rehearsing? So we need to be attuned to this how question. How does a vision of the good life shape our lives and shape our loves? But we also now need to ask the constructive question, what is the good life? Truly, what is the good life? Just what is the biblical vision of a life lived well? What, what does the Christian faith offer as an alternative to the vapid reduction of the good life that we get in consumerism? Or, or let's put it this way. What do citizens of the city of God hope for when they hope for the new Jerusalem? Well, this is why I don't think the good life is something that we want to refuse as luxurious and hedonistic. We want to reclaim it, and the gospel re-narrates what counts as the good life. The biblical vision of the good life is one of a flourishing creation refracted now through the cross in the midst of this fallen world, which is looking ahead to its renewal and restoration in kingdom come. My friend Nick Wolterstorff has encapsulated this by pointing out that this is what the Hebrew prophets were talking about when they talked about shalom. Shalom is the biblical shorthand for the good life. Shalom is the overarching song that is sung by the prophets. It's the good life that's lived and pictured for us by Jesus. It's the world that we peer into in the book of Revelation. It's, what is it? What's, what do we see when we look there? What, does the scripture, what do the scriptures encapsulate for us as this vision of shalom, the good life? Well, it's quite concrete. It's a vision of wolves dwelling with lambs and of children who are safe from lions and other ravages, Isaiah tells us. It's a world where the chains of injustice are broken and the lame are made to walk. 
and guns are beaten into plowshares. It's a biblical vision of the good life that is sung by Mary who celebrates that the hungry are filled with good things and about the exaltation of the lowly. It's a song that's sung by a choir from every tribe and tongue and nation of the earth. It's the inbreaking of a world that's announced by King Jesus where the brokenhearted are healed and captives are liberated and the oppressed are set free. It's a world where widows and orphans and immigrants, the vulnerable among us, are seen and valued and protected, Jeremiah tells us. The biblical vision of the good life is the picture of a world where God dwells in our midst, wiping away every tear, having conquered death. And the madness of the Christian life is that the good life is living towards that in the here and now. The upside downness of the biblical vision of the good life is the scandalous truth that you find your life by losing it. That joy comes to you when you actually relinquish your fixation on your own self-fulfillment and self-preservation. That picking up a cross is the way to flourishing. That other people are co-pilgrims, not competitors. The good life isn't about what you find and acquire. The good life is about being found by the one who made you. The question we need to ask ourselves, friends, is, is that actually the story that has captured our imaginations? Is that what we are living towards? Or have we been caught and caught up in by visions absorbed from our immersion in rival liturgies? But I also want us to stop and ask whether we are showing a better story of the good life. We need to see that what Scripture does is it doesn't refuse the good life. It doesn't dismiss the good life. It gives us a picture, a re-narration of what counts as the good life. And now the question we can ask ourselves as also a matter of witness is, are we bearing witness to that better story? Are we showing a better version of the good life? Not just telling, but showing. Are we embodying a foretaste of this biblical vision of shalom in such a way that it would captivate our neighbors? Heavens, friends, are we doing it in such a way that it would captivate our children? Are they going to be caught up in that biblical story by the way that we live it? Tim Keller has recently said that we are engaged in our culture in what he calls a wisdom contest. A wisdom contest. What he means is that in a sense, in the pluralism of our culture, the church offers a take on human flourishing, a take on the good life rooted in the scriptures that is now offered as an alternative to the rival versions of the good life that are pervaded by late modern culture industries. So his, the picture is like Elijah versus the prophets of Baal. And we both show up to the altar, so to speak. We have dueling altars. There should be banjos involved at this point, but we have dueling altars. Rival takes on the good life. And we can simply ask, which best leads to flourishing? 
Or sometimes, if we wanted to be just a little bit more tongue-in-cheek, we might ask, how's that working out for you? That's a wisdom contest. Whose story really narrates what it looks like for creation to flourish? I just want us to appreciate that this wisdom contest is at root an imagination contest. It's an imagination contest. It's less a matter of who has the best argument and more a question of whose vision is more alluring, attractive, captivating, disclosing the truth of who we are. Unfortunately, I think too many Christians sort of fall into the trap of imagining that we have to compete with these false versions of the good life by coming up with our own glitz and glamour. So that we compete with the glitz and glossiness of the consumer version of the good life by coming up with our own big box versions of the gospel. But as soon as we've done that, actually, we've already lost the contest. It subtly shows that we think the world has all the best liturgies. Jesified versions of secular liturgies are a sign that we've already seeded our imagination to worldly versions of the good life. So instead, friends, be encouraged to remember that this biblical vision of the good life, of joyful shalom, shines without garish neon. It catches attention without needing Times Square blinking lights precisely because it is beautiful and it is beautifully human. Don't underestimate how brightly the humble shine. Instead, remember that the one who humbled himself is now looked to by an entire world. Lives that are lived as foretastes of that kind of shalom will not be the stuff of celebrity. Those who live in the way of Jesus will not be hounded by paparazzi. But that doesn't mean that your neighbors won't take notice. Indeed, there's a profound beauty in what Raymond Carver once called small good things. If we live the cruciform lives shaped by shalom that we long for, we are actually offering the world a radically different picture of beauty. Let me close with an example. I'm picturing a very quiet scene at the end of a remarkable film called Lars and the Real Girl. It involves a character that evangelicals shall find, I'll just say, awkward and I'm not going to get into it. But don't miss the fact that actually I think this film is one of the most powerful portrayals of the church as the body of Christ in recent cinema. I want to zoom in on just one later scene in the film where Lars, who's played by Ryan Gosling, who's beautiful to look at, admittedly, uh, um, Lars is, in a sense, in the the, vigil, uh, uh, mourning and waiting for the death of his friend, Bianca. He awakes one morning during this vigil, emerges bleary-eyed from the house and stands on the porch to consider the day. And as he turns around, he sees that it is filled with flowers and prayer cards and candles and well wishes. And he goes inside and then he finds several older ladies knitting on the couch. We brought casseroles, one of them points out. The quiet clicking of their knitting needles is the soundtrack of compassion. Lars sits quietly, just kind of moving his food around the plates. He asks, is there something I should be doing now? No, dear, you eat. We came over to sit, 
one of them says. That's what you do when tragedy strikes. You come over and sit. Friends, we are a people who are called to come and sit with the world. To be present with it in its tragedy. You might not have imagined it, but sometimes the good life looks like casseroles in the quiet sadness of a mournful home. Because in fact, that's a table prepared in the wilderness by a people who are hoping for a feast to come. Amen.